Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Amy Trumbull Slauson. She was a terrific American author and storyteller. She wrote a lot of short stories, written in the style of what they called American literary regionalism, emphasizing the local color, in her case, of New England. She was also an entomologist, and she is noted for identifying previously unknown species. Most of her stories were published in the Atlantic Monthly and Harper's Bazaar, and some were collected into book form. You might remember the author Henry Van Dyke, whose story, The Other Wise Man, we narrated just a few weeks ago. He said this of Slauson, The loveliest of all her simple narratives is that which I have chosen to stand near the end of this book, a kind of benediction on anglers. And today's story is called Fish and Jimmy. I hope you enjoy it. It was on the margin of Pond Brook, just back of Uncle Eben's, that I first saw Fish and Jimmy. It was early June, and we were again at Franconia, that peaceful little village among the northern hills. The boys, as usual, were tempting the trout with false fly or real worm, and I was roaming along the bank, seeking spring flowers and hunting early butterflies and moths. Suddenly there's a little plash in the water at the spot where Ralph was fishing. The slender tip of his rod bent. I heard a voice cry out, Strike him, Sonny, strike him! And that old man came quickly but noiselessly through the bushes, just as Ralph's line flew up into space with, alas, no shining spotted trout upon the hook. The newcomer was a spare, wiry man of middle height with a slight stoop in his shoulders, a thin brown face, and scanty gray hair. He carried a fishing rod and had some small trout strung on a forked stick in one hand. A simple, homely figure, yet he stands out in memory just as I saw him then, no more to be forgotten than the granite hills, the rushing streams, the cascades of that north country I loved so well. We fell into talk at once, Ralph and Waldo rushing eagerly into questions about the fish, the bait, the best spots in the stream, advancing their own small theories and asking advice from their new friend. For friend he seemed, even in that first hour, as he began simply, but so wisely, to teach my boys the art he loved. They are older now, and are no mean anglers, I believe, but they look back gratefully to those brookside lessons, and acknowledge gladly their obligations to Fish and Jimmy. But it is not of these practical teachings I would now speak, rather of the lessons of simple faith, of unwearied patience, of self-denial and cheerful endurance, which the old man himself seemed to have learned, strangely enough, from the very sport so often called cruel and murderous. Incomprehensible as it may seem, to his simple intellect the fisherman's art was a whole system of morality, a guide for everyday life, an education, a gospel. It was all any poor mortal man, woman, or child needed in this world to make him or her happy, useful, and good. At first we scarcely realized this, and wondered greatly at certain things he said, and the tone in which he said them. I remember at that first meeting I asked him, rather carelessly, Do you like fishing? He did not reply at first. Then he looked at me with those odd, limpid, gray-green eyes of his, which always seemed to reflect the clear waters of mountain streams, and said very quietly, You wouldn't ask me if I liked my mother, or my wife and he always spoke of his pursuit as one speaks of something very dear, very sacred. 
Part of his story I learned from others, but most of it from himself, bit by bit, as we wandered together day by day in that lovely hill country. As I tell it over again, I seem to hear the rush of mountain streams, the sound of a going in the tops of the trees, the sweet, pensive strain of white-throat sparrow, and the plash of leaping trout, to see the crystal-clear waters pouring over granite rock, the wonderful purple light upon the mountains, the flash and glint of darting fish, the tender green of early summer in the north country. Fish and Jimmy's real name was James Witcher. He was born in the Franconia Valley of northern New Hampshire, and his whole life had been passed there. He had always fished. He could not remember when or how he learned the art. From the days when, a tiny, bare-legged urchin in ragged frock, he had dropped his piece of string with its bent pin at the end into the narrow, shallow brooklet behind his father's house. Through early boyhood season of roaming along Gale River, wading Black Brook, rowing a leaky boat on street or a mink pond, through youth, through manhood, on and on into old age. His life had apparently been one long day's fishing, an angler's holiday. Had it been only that? He had not cared for books or school, and all efforts to tie him down to study were unavailing. But he knew well the books of running brooks. No dry botanical textbook or manual could have taught him all he now knew of plants and flowers and trees. He did not call the yellow spatter dock Nufar Advina, but he knew its large leaves of rich green, where the black bass or pickerel sheltered themselves from the summer sun, and its yellow balls on stout stems, around which his line so often twined and twisted, or in which the hook caught, not to be jerked out till the long, green, juicy stalk itself, topped with a globe of greenish gold, came up from its wet bed. He knew the sedges along the bank with their nodding tassels and stiff lance-like leaves, the feathery grasses, the velvet moss upon the wet stones, the sea-green lichen on boulder or tree trunk. There, in that corner of Echo Lake, grew the thickest patch of pipewort, with its small, round, grayish-white, mushroom-shaped tops on long, slender stems. If he had styled it Aerocolon septangulare, would it have shown a closer knowledge of its habits than did his careful avoidance of its vicinity? His keeping line and flies at a safe distance, as he muttered to himself, "'Them pesky buttons again!' He knew by sight the burr-reed of mountain ponds, with its round, prickly balls strong like big beads on the stiff, erect stalks. The little water lobelia, with tiny purple blossoms, springing from the waters of lake and pond. He knew, too, all the strange, beautiful underwater growth. Bladderwort in large, feathery garlands. Pellucid waterweed. Quillwort in stiff little bunches with sharp-pointed leaves of olive green. Also seldom seen, save by the angler whose hooks draw up from time to time the wet, lovely tangle. I remember the amusement with which a certain well-known botanist, who had journeyed to the mountains in search of a little plant, found many years ago near Echo Lake, but not since seen, heard me propose to consult Fish and Jimmy on the subject. But I was wiser than he knew. Jimmy looked at the specimen brought as an aid to identification. It was dry and flattened, and as unlike a living, growing plant as are generally the specimens from an herbarium. But it showed the all-shaped leaves, the thread-like stalk with its tiny round seed vessels, 
like those of our common shepherd's purse, and Jimmy knew it at once. "'There's a dreadful lot of that peppergrass out deep water there, just where I catch the big pickerel,' he said quietly. "'I seen it nigh a foot high, and it's juicier and livener than them dead sticks in your book.' At our request, he accompanied the unbelieving botanist and myself to the spot, and there, looking down through the sunlit water, we saw great patches of that rare and long-lost plant of the crucifers known to science as Subularia aquatica. For forty years it had hidden itself away, growing and blossoming and casting abroad its tiny seeds in its watery home, unseen, or at least unnoticed, by living soul, save by the keen, soft, limpid eyes of fish and jimmy. And he knew the trees and shrubs so well, the alder and birch from which as a boy he cut his simple, pliant pole, the shadblow and the ironwood, he called them, respectively, sugar plum and hard hack, which he used for the more ambitious rods of mature years, the mooseberry, wayfaring tree, hobblebush, or triptoe. It has all these names, with stout, trailing branches, over which he stumbled as he hurried through the woods and underbrush in the darkening twilight. He had never heard of the word entomology. Guaney, Hubner, and Fabricius were unknown names, but he could have told these worthies many new things. Did they know just at what hour the trout ceased leaping a dark fly or moth and could see only in the dim light the ghostly white miller? Did they know the comparative merits as a tempting bait of grasshopper, cricket, spider, or wasp? And could they, with bits of wool, tinsel, and feather, copy the real dipterous, hymenopterous, or othopterous insect? And the birds, he knew them, as do few ornithologists, by sight, by sound, by little ways and tricks of their own, known only to themselves and to him. The white-throated sparrow with its sweet, far-reaching chant, the hermit thrush with its chime of bells in the calm summer twilight, the vesper sparrow that ran before him as he crossed the meadow, or sang for hours as he fished the stream, its unvarying but scarcely monotonous little strain. The cedar bird, with its smooth brown coast of Quaker simplicity, and speech as brief and simple as Quaker yea or nay. The winter wren sending out his strange, lovely, liquid warble from the high rocky side of Cannon Mountain. The bluebird of the early spring, so welcome to the winter-weary dwellers in that land of ice and snow. As he, from the bluer deeps, lets fall a quick, prophetic strain. Of summer of streams freed and flowing again, of walking, darting, eager fish, the Veery, the Phoebe, the Jay, the Vireo, all these were friends, familiar, tried and true, to fish and jimmy. The cluck and coo of the cuckoo, the bubbling song of bobolink in buff and black, the watery trill of the stream-loving swamp sparrow, the whispered whistle of the stealthy, darkness-hunting whippoorwill, the gurgle and gargle of the cow bunting. He knew each and all better than did Audubon, Nuttall, or Wilson. But he never dreamed that even the tiniest of his little favorites bore, in the scientific world, far away from that quiet mountain nest, such names as Troglodytes hyamelus or Melus Pisa palustris. He could tell you, too, of strange, shy creatures rarely seen except by the early-rising, late-fishing angler, in quiet, lonesome places, the otter, 
muskrat, and mink of ponds and lakes. Rival fishers who bore out prey sometimes from under his very eyes. Field mice in meadow and pasture, blind, burrowing moles, prickly hedgehogs, brown hares, and social, curious squirrels. Sometimes he saw deer in the early morning or in the dusk of the evening as they came to drink at the lake shore and looked at him with big soft eyes not unlike his own. Sometimes a shaggy bear trotted across his path and hid himself in the forest, or a sharp-eared fox ran barking through the bushes. He loved to tell of these things to us who cared to listen, and I still seemed to hear his voice saying in hushed tones after a story of woodland sight or sound, "'Nobody don't see him but fishermen. Nobody don't hear him but fishermen.'" We'll return with part two of Fish and Jimmy right after these sponsor messages. And now part two of Fish and Jimmy. But it was of another kind of knowledge he oftenest spoke, and of which I shall try to tell you in his own words as nearly as possible. First let me say that if there should seem to be the faintest tinge of irreverence in aught I write, I tell my story badly. There was no irreverence in Fish and Jimmy. He possessed a deep and profound veneration for all things spiritual and heavenly. But it was the veneration of a little child, mingled as is that child's with perfect confidence and utter frankness. And he used the dialect of the country in which he lived. As I was telling ye, he said, I allers loved fishing and knowed twas the best thing in the whole earth. I knowed it larn't ye more about critters and yarbs and stones and water than books can tell ye. I knowed it made folks patienter and common senser and weatherwiser and cuter generally. Get em more faculty than all the school learning and creation. I knowed it was more fillin' than vittles, more rousin' than whiskey, more soothin' than laudlum. I knowed cooled ye off when ye was hep and het ye when ye was cold. I knowed all that, of course. Any fool knows it. But will you believe it? I was more than twenty year old. A man growed, for I found out why twas that way. Father and mother was Christian folks, good out and out Calvinist Baptist from over Eastern Way. They fetched me up right, made me go to meeting and read a chapter every Sunday, and say a hymn Saturday night after washing, and I used to say my prayers most nights. I wasn't a bad boy as boys go, but nobody thought of telling me the one thing, just the one single thing. That I have made all the difference. I knowed about God and how He made me and made the earth, and everything at once I got thinking about that. And I asked my father if God made the fishes. He said, Of course He did, the sea and all the in is. But somehow that didn't seem to mean nothing much to me, and I lost my interest again. And I read the scripture account of Jonah and the big fish, and all that in Job about pulling out everything with a hook and sticking fish spears in his head and some parts in them queer books nigh the end of the Old Testament about fish ponds and fish gates and fish pools, and how the fishers shall lament. Everything I could pick out about fishing and seeing. But it didn't come home to me. Twarn't my kind of fishing, and I didn't seem to sense it. But one day, it's more than forty year ago now, but I recollect it same as it was yesterday, and I shall recollect it forty thousand years from now if I'm round, and I guess I shall be. I heard. Something. Different. I was down in the village one Sunday. It weren't very good fishing. The streams was too full, and I thought I'd just look into the meeting house as I went by. 
"'Twas the old Union Meeting House, down to the corner, you know, "'and they hadn't got no regular supply, "'and you never knowed what sort you'd hear, "'so twas kind of exciting. "'Twas late, most eleven o'clock, "'and the sermon had begun. "'There was a strange man a-preaching, "'someone from over to the hotel. "'I never heard his name. "'I never seed him from that day to this, "'but I knowed his face. "'Queer enough I'd seed him a-fishing. "'I never knowed he was a minster. "'He didn't look like one.' He went about like a real fisherman, with old clothes and an old hat with hooks stuck in it, and big rubber boots, and he fished, really fished. I mean, catched them. I guess it was that made me listen a little sharper than usual, for I never seed a fishing minster before. Elder Jackson, he said it was a sinful waste of time, and old Parson Loomis, he'd an idea it was cruel and unmerciful, so I thought I'd just see what this man I'd preach about, and I settled down to listen to his sermon. "'but there wasn't no sermon, "'not what I'd been raised to think was only too kind. "'There weren't no heads, no fussflies, no secondlies, "'no friendly brothers, "'but the first thing I knowed I was hearing a story, "'and it was a fishing story. "'Twas about someone. "'I hadn't the least idea then who it was "'and how much it all meant. "'Someone that was dreadful fond of fishing and fishermen. "'Someone that sought everything by the water.' "'and used to go along by the lakes and ponds "'and sail on them "'and talk with the men that was fishing, "'and how the fishermen all liked him "'and asked his advice, "'and done jest he told them "'about the likeliest places to fish "'and how they allers catch more for minding him, "'and how he was a-preaching "'he'd go into a big meeting house "'and talk to rich folks all slicked up, "'but he'd just go out in a fishing boat "'and ask the men to shove out a mite, "'and he'd talk to the folks on shore, "'the fishing folks and their wives "'and the boys and gals playing on the shore.' And then, best of everything, he told how he was a-choosing the men to go about with him and help him learn his way so as to come after him. He first all picked out the men he'd seen every day fishing and maybe fish with himself, for he knowed them and knowed he could trust them. And then he told us about the day when this preacher come along by the lake. A dreadful sightly place, this minster said. He'd seated himself when he was a-traveling in them countries and come across two men he knowed well. They was brothers, and they was a-fishing, and he just asked him in his pleasant-spoken, friendly way. There weren't never such a drawing, taking, loving way with anyone afore as this man had, the minster said. He just asked them to come along with him, and they lay down their poles and their lines and everything and joined them. And then he come along a spell further, and he sees two boys out with their old father, and they was setting in a boat and fixing up their tackle. "'and he asked them if they'd join him too, "'and they just dropped all their things "'and left the old man with the boat and the fish and the bait "'and followed the preacher. "'I don't tell it very good. "'I've read it and read it since that, "'but I want to make you see how it sounded to me, "'how I took it, as the minster told it that summer day "'in Frankeny meeting. "'You see, I had no idea who the story was about. "'The man put it so plain in common kind of talk.' "'without any come-to passes and whuffers and thuffers, "'and I never conceded it was a Bible narrative. "'And so first thing I knowed, I says to myself, "'That's the kind of teacher I want. "'If I could come across a man like that, "'I'd just follow him, too, through thick and thin. "'Well, I can't put the rest on it into talk very good. "'Tain't just the kind of thing to speak on for folks, "'even such good friends as you. "'I ain't the sort to go back on my word. "'Fisherman ain't, you know.' 
and what I'd said to myself, for I knowed who I was binding myself to. I stuck to afterwards when I knowed all about him. For it ain't for me to tell ye, who've got so much more learning than me, that there was a dreadful lot more to that story than the fishing part. That loving, giving up, suffering, dying part, you know it all yourself, and I can't kind of say much on it, except when I'm just all by myself, or long of him. That afternoon I took my old Bible I hadn't read much since I growed up, and I went out into the woods along the river. Instead of fishing, I just sat down and read that whole story. Now you know it yourself by heart, and you've noted all your born days, so you can't begin to tell how new and astonishing it was to me, and how finding so much fishing in it kind of helped me understand and believe it every might, and take it right home to me to follow and live up to as long as I live and breathe. Did you ever think on it, really? I tell you, his religion is a fishing religion all through. His friends was fishing folks. His pulpit was a fishing boat, or the shore, or the lake. He loved the ponds and streams, and when his disciples went out fishing, if he didn't go himself with them, he'd go after them, walking on the water, to cheer them up and comfort them. And he was always round the water, for the story will say, he come to the seashore, or he begun to teach by the seaside, or again, he entered into a boat, and he was in the stern of the boat, asleep. And he used fish in his miracles. He fed that crowd of folks on fish when they was hungry. Bought him from a little chap on the shore. I've often thought how dreadful tickled that boy must have been to have him take them fish. Maybe they weren't nothing but shiners, but the first little fellow they ever catched. And boys sit a heap on their first catch. He was dreadful good to children, you know. And who'd he come to after he died and rise again? Why, well, he came down to the shore for daylight and looked off over the pond where his old friends was a-fishing. You see, they'd gone out just to quiet their minds and keep up their spirits. There's nothing like fishing for that, you know? And they'd been in a heap of trouble. When they was setting up the night before, worrying and wondering and surmising what was going to become of them without their master, Peter would get kind of desperate, and he set up, and he up and says in his quick way, says he, Anyway, I'm a-going fishing. And they all see the sense in that. Any fisherman would. And they says, says they, We'll go along too. But they didn't catch anything. I suppose they couldn't fix their minds on it, and everything went wrong like. But when morning come creeping up over the mountains, first thing they knowed they see him on the bank, and he called out to them to know if they'd catched anything. The water just run down my cheeks when I heard the minister tell that. And it kind of makes my eyes wet every time I think on it. For it seems as if it might have been me in that boat, who hearing that voice I loved so dreadful well speak up again so natural from the bank there. And he ate some of their fish. Of course, he done it to sot their minds easy, to show them he weren't quite a spirit yet, but just their old friend who'd been out on the boat with them so many, many times. But seems to me, just the fact he'd done it kind of makes fish and fishing different from any other thing in the whole earth. I tell you them four books of Guinea's stories chock full of things that go right to the heart of fishermen. Nets and hooks and boats and the shores and the sea and the mountains, Peter's fishing coat, lilies and sparrows and grass of the fields and all about the evening sky being red or lowering and fair or foul weather. It's an outdoors woodsy country story besides being the heavenliest one that was ever told. I read the whole Bible as a duty, you know, I read the epistles, and somehow they don't come home to me. Paul was a great man, 
a dreadful smart scholar, but he was raised in the city, I guess. And when I go from the Gospels into Paul's writings, it's like going from the woods and hills and streams of Frankety into the streets of a big city like Concord or Manchester. The old man did not say much of his afterlife and the fruits of this strange conversion, but his neighbors told us a great deal. They spoke of his unselfishness, his charity, his kindly deeds, told of his visiting the poor and unhappy, nursing the sick. They said the little children loved him, and everyone in the village and for miles around trusted and leaned upon Fishing Jimmy. He taught the boys to fish, sometimes the girls too, and while learning to cast and strike, to whip the stream, they drank in knowledge of higher things and came to know and love Jimmy's fishing religion. I remember they told me of a little French-Canadian girl, a poor, wretched waif, whose mother, an unknown tramp, had fallen dead in the road near the village. The child, an untamed little heathen, was found clinging to her mother's body in an agony of grief and rage, and fought like a tiger when they tried to take her away. A boy in the little group attracted to the spot ran away with a child's faith in his old friend to summon Fish and Jimmy. He came quickly, lifted the little savage tenderly, and carried her away. No one witnessed the taming process, but in a few days the pair were seen together on the margin of Black Brook, each with a fish pole. Her dark face was bright with interest and excitement as she took her first lesson in the art of angling. She jabbered and chattered in her odd patois. He answered in broadest New England dialect, but the two quite understood each other, and though Jimmy said afterward that it was dreadful to hear her call the fish poison, they were soon great friends and comrades. For weeks he kept and cared for the child, and when she left him for a good home in Bethlehem, one would scarcely have recognized in the gentle, affectionate girl the wild creature of the past. Though often questioned as to the means used to effect this change, Jimmy's explanation seemed rather vague and unsatisfactory. "'Twas fishing done it,' he said. "'Only fishing. It allers works. The Christian religion itself had to begin with fishing, you know. And now part three of Fishing Jimmy. But one thing troubled Fishing Jimmy. He wanted to be a fisher of men. That was what the great teacher had promised he would make the fishermen who left their boats to follow him. What strange, literal meaning he attached to the terms, we could not tell. In vain we, especially the boys, whose young hearts had gone out in warm affection to the old man, tried to show him that he was by his efforts to do good and make others better and happier, fulfilling the Lord's directions. He could not understand it so. I always try to think, he said, that twas me in that boat when he came along. I make believe that it was out on street or pond, and I was setting in the boat, fixing my landing net, when I see him on the shore. I think maybe I'm that James, for that's my given name, you know, although they always call me Jimmy. And then I hear him calling me, "'James! James! I can hear him just as plain sometimes when the wind's blowing in the trees, and I just ache to go up to follow him. But he says, "'I'll make you a fisher of men, and he ain't done it. I'm waiting. Maybe he'll learn me some day.'" He was fond of all the living creatures, merciful to all, but his love for our dog Dash became a passion, for Dash was an angler. Who that ever saw him sitting in a boat beside his master, watching with eager eye and whole body trembling with excitement, the line as it was cast, the flies as they touched the surface? Who can forget old Dash? His fierce excitement at rise of trout, 
the efforts at self-restraint, the disappointment if the prey escaped, the wild exultation if it was captured, how plainly he who runs might read, were shown these emotions in eye, in ear, in tail, in whole quivering body, what wondered that it all went straight to the fisher's heart of Jimmy. "'I never knowed afore they could be Christians,' he said, looking, with tears in his soft, keen eyes, at the everyday scene, and with no faintest thought of irreverence. "'I never knowed it, but I'd give a certificate of membership in the Orthodoxist Church going to that dog there.' It's almost needless to say that as years went on, Jimmy came to know many fishing ministers, for there are many of that school who know our mountain country and seek it yearly. All these knew and loved the old man, and there were others who had wandered by that sea of Galilee and fished in the waters of the Holy Land, and with them fishing Jimmy dearly loved to talk. But his wonder was never ending that, in the scheme of evangelizing the world, more use was not made to the fishing side of the story. Hain't they ever tried it on them poor heathen? he would ask earnestly of some clerical angler casting a fly upon the clear water of pond or brook. I should think twould have been the first thing they'd done. Fishing first, and and religion's sure to foller. And it's so easy, for heathen mostly resides on islands, don't they? So there's plenty of water, and of course there's fishing, and once it give them poles and get them to work, and they're out of mischief for that day. They'd like it better than cannibalin or cutting out idols, or scratching pictures all over themselves, and by and by, not too sudden, you know, to scare them, you could begin on that story, and they couldn't stand that, not a heathen on them. Won't you speak to the American board about it, and send out a few fishing ministries with poles and lines and tackle generally? I've tried it on dreadful bad folks, and it alters done them good. But, so almost all his simple talk ended, I wish I could begin to be a fisher of men, I'm getting on now. I'm nigh on seventy, and I ain't got much time, you see. One afternoon in July, there came over Franconia Notch one of those strangely sudden tempests which sometimes visit that mountain country. It had been warm that day, unusually warm for that refreshingly cool spot. But suddenly the sky grew dark and darker, almost to blackness. There was a roll of thunder and flash of lightning, and then poured down the rain. Rain at first, but soon hail in large frozen bullets, which fiercely pelted any who ventured outdoors, rattled against the windows of the profile house with sharp cracks like the sounds of musketry, and lay upon the piazza in heaps like snow. And in the midst of the wild storm, it was remembered that two boys, guests at the hotel, had gone up Mount Lafayette alone that day. They were young boys, unused to mountain climbing, and their friends were anxious. It was found that Dash had followed them, and just as someone was to be sent in search of them, a boy from the stables brought the information that Fish and Jimmy had started up the mountain after them as the storm broke. He said if he couldn't be a fisher of men, maybe he'd knowed enough to catch boys, went on our informant, seeing nothing more in the speech, full of pathetic meaning to us who knew him, than the idle talk of one who many considered lacking. Jimmy was old now, and had of late grown very feeble, and we did not like to think of him out in that wild storm. And now suddenly the lost boys themselves appeared through the opening in the woods opposite the house, and ran into the sleet, now falling more quietly. They were wet, but no worse apparently for their adventure, though full of contrition and distress at having lost sight of the dog. He had rushed off into the woods some hours before, 
after a rabbit or hedgehog, and had never returned, nor had they seen Fish and Jimmy. As hours went by and the old man did not return, a search party was sent out, and guides familiar with the mountain paths went up Lafayette to seek for him. It was nearly night when they at last found him, and the grand old mountains had put on these robes of royal purple which they sometimes assume at eventide. At the foot of a massive rock which looked like amethyst or wine-red agate in that marvelous evening light, the old man was lying, and Dash was with him. From the few faint words Jimmy could then gasp out, the truth was gathered. He had missed the boys, leaving the path by which they had returned, and while stumbling along in search of them, feeble and weary, he had heard far below a sound of distress. Looking down over a steep rocky ledge, he had seen his friend and fishing comrade, Old Dash, in sore trouble. Poor Dash! He never dreamed of harming his old friend, for he had a kind heart. But he was a sad coward in some matters, and a very baby when frightened and away from master and friends. So I fear he may have assumed the role of wounded sufferer, when in reality he was but scared and lonesome. He never owned this afterward, and you may be sure we never let him know, by word or look, the evil he had done. Jimmy saw him holding up one paw helplessly, and looking at him with wistful, imploring brown eyes, heard his pitiful, whimpering cry for aid, and never doubted his great distress and peril. Was Dash not a fisherman? And fishermen, in Fish and Jimmy's category, were always true and trusty. So the old man, without a second's hesitation, started down that steep, smooth decline to the rescue of his friend. We do not know just how or where in that terrible descent he fell. To us who afterwards saw the spot and thought of the weak old man, chilled by the storm, exhausted by his exertions, and yet clambering down that precipitous cliff, made more slippery and treacherous by the sleet and hail still falling, it seemed impossible that he could have kept a foothold for an instant. Nor am I sure that he expected to save himself and Dash too, but he tried. He was sadly hurt. I will not tell you of that. Looking out from the hotel windows through the gathering darkness, we who loved him, it was not a small group, saw a sorrowful sight. Flickering lights thrown by the lanterns of the guides came through the woods. Across the road, slowly, carefully, came strong men, bearing on a rough, hastily made litter of boughs, the dear old man. All that could have been done for the most distinguished guest, for the dearest, best-beloved friend, was done for the gentle fisherman. We, his friends, and proud to style ourselves thus, were of different, widely separated lands, greatly varying creeds. Some were nearly as old as the dying man, some in the prime of manhood. There were youths and maidens and little children, but through the night we watched together. The old Roman bishop, whose calm, benign face we all know and love. The churchman, ascetic in faith, but with the kindest, most indulgent heart when one finds it. The gentle old Quakeress with placid, unwrinkled brow and silvery hair. Presbyterian, Methodist, and Baptist, we were all one that night. The old angler did not suffer. We were so glad of that. But he did not appear to know us, and his talk seemed strange. It rambled on quietly, softly, like one of his own mountain brooks, babbling of green fields, of sunny summer days, of his favorite sport, and, ah, of other things. But he was not speaking to us. A sudden, 
awed hush and thrill came over us as, bending to catch the low words, we all at once understood what only the bishop put into words as he said, half to himself, in a sudden, quick, broken whisper, God bless the man. He's talking to his master. Yes, sir, that's so, went on the quiet voice. I was only a dog, sure enough. "'Twan't even a boy, as you say, "'and ye asked me to be a fisher of men, "'but I hain't had no chance for that, somehow. "'Maybe I wasn't fit for it. "'I'm only just a poor old fisherman, "'fishing Jimmy, you know, sir. "'Only a dog? "'But he wasn't just a common dog, sir. "'He was a fishing dog. "'I never seen a man love fishing more than Dash. "'The dog was in the room and heard his name, Dash. "'Stealing to the bedside,' He put a cold nose into the cold hand of his old friend, and no one had the heart to take him away. The touch turned the current of the old man's talk for a moment, and he was fishing again with his dog friend. See him break, Dashy? See him break? Lots on him today, ain't they? Keep still. Here's a good dog. Well, I put on a different fly. Don't you see they're jumping at them gnats? Ain't the water just live with them? Ain't it shining and clear and... The voice faltered an instant, then went on. Please wait on the bank there a minute. I'm a coming. I can do it. Don't you mind about me, sir. I'll get across. Once more the voice ceased, and we thought we should not hear it again this side of that stream. But suddenly a strange light came over the thin face. The soft gray eyes opened wide, and he cried out, with the strong voice we'd so often heard come ringing out to us across the mountain streams above the sound of their rushing. I can do it. Don't you mind about me, sir. I'll get across. Had the voice ceased utterly? No. We could catch faint, low murmurs, and the lips still moved. But the words were not for us, and we did not know when he reached the other bank. We hope you enjoyed Fishing Jimmy by Annie Trumbull Slauson. If you did, Apple Podcast listeners, please stop a moment and give us a kind review. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners decide to give us a try. We also appreciate our Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Thanks so much for being with us for this great story. We'll return soon. As you know, we bring stories every Sunday at noon Eastern Time and Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Until the next story, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.